0: Hello, humans. My name is Jesse, A.K.A. the Bizzle, and welcome to Bizzlecast, episode ten. We made it to ten, double digits, um, triple digits someday. I hope, probably in twenty twenty-seven after Judgment Day. But for now, um, thank you all for all of your support. I wouldn't be doing this if people weren't listening to it and enjoying it, I'd be getting great feedback, and you know, even when you know that you're doing a good job on something, it's always great to hear from other people about it, Um, and just keeps me motivated, keeps me excited, and as we'll continue here and continue into the future, interviews are going to become a bigger and bigger part of the Bizzlecast, and that was always the plan, was to mix up my sort of solo uh, Bizzlecast uh, journeys and adventures and gallivanting with interviews with friends and other people who are doing super interesting things, or just have really cool ideas and interesting things to say, and hopefully all of those things, so in this podcast, I will be interviewing my good friend from college, Sivan Kotel, who is currently the co-founder and co-owner of Stonecutter Spirits, it's an independent husband-wife duo with his great wife Stas. You can find them online at stonecutterspirits.com. They live in Vermont, and they are now brewing and have brewed two different kinds of whiskey. And even more important, for my perspective, because I love good gin, a whole new approach to making gin, where they sort of use the whiskey method to make the gin. And we will certainly be talking about his company, but Sivan's had a really intriguing Um, set of life choices that he's made and followed through on since we were freshman year roommates at Wesleyan University, going from music to primatology to psychological study of memory, deciding to not go to grad school and enter the finance world, where he's very successful, eventually left the finance world, where he was doing well and enjoying it, to join up with uh, some spirits companies up in Vermont, and is now doing his Own one, but Sivan is also on that list of like, you know, what are the smartest people I know? And I think we all have that list. And what's great about Sivan is he manages to be super intelligent, but he can just communicate it so well. And so we'll be talking about finance, we'll be talking about sports betting and gambling, we'll be talking about why so many of us who lived in New York City left New York City. And then we'll be getting to even headier topics of artificial intelligence. He also loves the Terminator, so we'll talk a little Terminator, a little time travel. It'll be all over the place. I think you guys are really going to like this one. Really brilliant dude um, He just has great perspective on life and has been in many different fields following the trajectory of the interviews on BizzleCast. Thanks again for helping us get to 10. And here we go. In the future, the singularity will determine the fate of mankind. Will it help save the world or destroy it? Machines will take human form. Humans will be modded by machines. Books, movies, television, art, philosophy, religion, and history. These are the tools to understand the choices we have yet to make and the consequences of those already made. The war to save mankind begins now with the Bizzlecast. All right, BizzleCast listeners, I'm here with my old and good friend, Sivan Cotel, who runs his own spirits company, um, has been in the business for a few years, has also done a lot of other stuff, um, sort of a running theme in the BizzleCast. I like to have people on who have a lot of different life experiences um, in job world and elsewhere. So, Sivan, welcome to BizzleCast, buddy. Thanks
1: for having me, Jesse. I'm excited.
0: Hell yeah, hell yeah. Great to have you, and a uh, lot to talk about. Um, definitely want to talk old school at some point about college where we met. We were freshman room uh, dorm mates, but there was some really weird coincidences um, in terms of that we kind of knew each other before we thought we knew each other, Um, but we will discuss that later. I wanted to jump right to the present at first because it's such a cool thing that you're working on um, in terms of your your, your current professional path that you're taking, Um, and then we'll jump back at various points. So right now, you are running your own spirits company correct
1: yeah my wife and i run and own stonecutter spirits in middlebury vermont and we make gin and two whiskeys none of which are out in the wild yet but we're just about to release our first batch of barrel aged gin
0: wow you know how i feel about jed Uh, (laughs) Sivad Sivad knows pretty much all my personal characteristics and one of them is that gin and tonics um, are a favorite of mine, although I don't drink them much because I really like good gin only, uh, for the most part, not that I'm a snob, I just, you know, I don't need excuses to drink a lot of gin and tonics, but uh, i very excited when I heard about that, and I do like whiskey sometimes, I obviously know a lot of people who love whiskey, um, I guess, is it common uh, for sort of, you know, small, independent, family-run spirits companies to make multiple uh, kinds of spirits?
1: I think, actually, it's all too common that Smaller companies in spirits make too many. You see a lot of small businesses like this that, uh, I'm not going to say undisciplined, because that's a little pejorative. I don't think that's fair. I just think people are very excited to explore a lot of ideas, and next thing they know, they've got 10 or 15 different products out. And they do have fans of each one, so right. they don't want to stop or kill one, but they mm-hmm. realize that they're stressed way too thin. Right,
0: totally, totally. And that's, you know, I think that's an interesting point about small businesses in general. Uh, as you know about, and as I've talked about a little bit in the past Bizzlecast, I worked for a few years at a music company I started with our mutual good buddy, Eric Herman from Wesley, and we all went to college together. And we worked with um, primarily uh, artists from Africa, and Brazil, other parts of the world. And, you know, we ran into this problem almost immediately, which was like, okay, um, we don't really have the money or the manpower to get, you know, a dozen or a dozen and a half artists on our roster. But if one or two of our artists don't pan out, um, luckily they usually did, occasionally they didn't, it was a big problem. Now, Spirits is a high end market. I, there's a lot that goes into it. But in a way, I would say our company is sort of a boutique kind of company in a similar way to yours, in that we're sort of quality over quantity. I don't know if that's oversimplifying yet.
1: I think it's a very fair comparison, and I usually think of the throwing spaghetti at the wall idea. Mm. Because especially in spirits, if Mm. you look at the majors, they're constantly throwing spaghetti at the wall just to see what sticks. And you have, you know, every... Vodka with a flavored, colored this and a that, and you know, let's try cucumber flavored. Let's try poison flavored, and let's just see what happens. Because for a major with a large financial presence and the ability to absorb throwing a product away, they can try things, see if something sticks, and if it doesn't, they discount it like heck, and they move on to the next thing. Totally. And so I think sometimes you see that the small businesses. This is especially in spirits, but I think it's probably true in most places. Small businesses end up learning by absorbing some ideas and approaches from the majors without necessarily having the chance or the opportunity to critically think about whether all of those approaches make sense in their own smaller context. Mm. Mm. So that's something we've tried to be really mindful of. In this case, Sass, my wife, and I, it's just the two of us. This is our baby, it's our I'm not gonna call it our nest egg, it's kind of our everything. We've put our own money into it, we put our lives into it, we don't sure. have any other jobs. Yeah. So it's all of the above and we wanna be really careful with it while at the same time doing something that we're really excited about. So it's always a balancing act where you think, how do we focus on this properly and how do we push it in the right direction in a way that works really well right. is pushing the boundaries enough that it can do something new and interesting but also isn't about to run right over the ledge.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think with the sort of boutique model, or whatever you want to call it, um, there is at least a two-pronged effect, right? I mean, the the obvious one, and and the main reason to do, um, or to take the approach that you're taking, and uh, the approach that we take at Modiba about handpicking the best artists, is that, it's a good business decision, right? That's sort of the obvious uh, primary reason. But secondarily, you develop a reputation for being a tastemaker, right? And that is also very beneficial.
1: Absolutely, and your your identity is tied to the brand, and the brand is tied to your identity, and that's something that's unique to smaller businesses that yeah. I don't think is possible in the majors, with you know a few obvious exceptions when there's some crazy colorful billionaire who's known for their franchise, but in general, it's it's an opportunity that I think is really interesting and fun about being in a smaller business, because you damn well better be doing something you love, because this is your life now, and if you're doing that properly, it shines through and gets to be a really exciting part of it.
0: Right. Totally. And, you know, I wonder if... I mean, do you ever... um we talked about this off air a little bit, I know that you draw a lot of experiences from when you were in um, banking and finance, uh, which you were for a number of years, and then sort of took a a sharp left turn um, into a, a cool new phase of your life, but with finance, it is sort of about throwing shit at the wall, right? And it is about spreading out risk and all this sorts of stuff, which is sort of the opposite of sort of our approach to small business, or am I just generalizing finance too much there?
1: Well, uh, I think there's a lot more to finance, and depending on what you do and where you work, especially. Yeah, Bizzle. Over,
0: Bizzle, Bizzle think- does not know a lot about finance, so if I <laughs> <laughs> if I come well, across as oversimplified here, that's I apologize.
1: The the general idea of what you express though is absolutely true. Where when you're in small businesses, whether you want to or not, there's no chance to diversify. Right. So where finance or just big business in general are probably always trying to intelligently cover a number of bases so that they're never too exposed to any one specific thing. In small businesses, if we do that, we just get diluted and have nothing interesting going on. And that gets back to some of the mom and pop spirits companies we mentioned to slightly earlier, where, hey, if you have 10, 15, 20 products out, sometimes you suddenly realize, holy crap, how do we differentiate? Maybe, if you're lucky, the differentiating factor is the fact that all of them are really good, and you've proved yourself to be incredible at what you do, no matter what it is. But that's a very difficult one to prove out. So usually, when we think about our own business, for me and SaaS, and in general, when we've done some consulting, which we did a lot of before we started this business, and still done some of it on the side, we try to remind folks that it's very helpful if you can think about what you really want to focus on and focus on it. There can be some other fun special projects, there can be some special releases for the holidays, but you don't need 10, 15, 20 products. In our case, we're doing three. And even of those three, two of them are very darn similar. Right. So, trying to keep it really focused. Sure. But in our case, that's also specifically to what we're interested in doing, which is why we're doing one gin and two whiskeys, because we're interested in gin and whiskey we don't feel the need to do a million different things or start, you know, working with some crazy grain or herb that no one's ever used before just to see what happens. There's some fun stuff you can do there, and a right. lot of folks are looking at that, but we're trying to keep it simple and just focus on what we're interested in.
0: Absolutely. And, um, yeah, just to just to sort of keep this idea going, if you look at sort of the somewhat, you know, niche. Uh, industry that you're in in terms of spirits and that my company Modiba is in in terms of music, those niches only exist, and this is a very Taoist thing, but those niches only exist as a binary to the rest of the market, which is non-niche, right? The a million flavors of vodka market, right? You can, let's say you're doing vodka, that was straight vodka, but was really, really good. You could market it as, you know, don't waste your time on all these fruity vodkas, just drink good vodka or whatever. You you see what I'm saying? Like, you couldn't be a niche without a non-niche market. And I think to tie it with the financing and bring it to... To sort of the level of capitalism, the idea of capitalism um, is that, you know, every market and every opportunity and every resource is explored, right? And so, there are many different levels or ways for that to happen, um, but to become a boutique, there has to be a non-boutique world, and, you know, did you, I now, I don't know if you're much of a gambler, I, I do know you're a great poker player, Um I don't know if you know this about me, although I've never bet in my life, I'm really into the mathematics of gambling, especially sports gambling. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that I really, I'm really i not a gambler, but I'm really into it. And so for Vegas to have a good year, they have to win, what, like 53%, something like that? Sounds logical. Is that what you – okay, sounds like 53%. Um, and it seems like the finance world in some places operates – Along that same theory, the problem is the other forty-seven percent of people who either don't know what they're doing in terms of their investi- investments or just get unlucky kind of get screwed. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, when you were in finance, well, I'll, I'll yeah, jump go in there because sure.
1: I actually think the the very the part I've always been fascinated with in Vegas or finance or other large businesses like that is not necessarily the way you were just describing it as winning 53% of the time and, mm. and that's enough to overall do well. Um, I don't think that's an unfair characterization, but the part that I found really interesting A when I worked in the finance world, but also B thinking about Vegas or gambling or other ty- types of activity like that is that they really make their money by making a small piece in the middle of much larger transactions. This is true of gambling, this is true of finance, this is true of any service provider too sometimes. It doesn't have to be uh, just in the world we're talking about here. It could be a phone company that really is making a slight fraction of a penny on everything they charge you for related to their raw costs. That's how a lot of big businesses approach everything, is really those slight amount of margins they could make. And a company making 25% Twenty five percent margins, fifty percent margins, those are huge. Right. So if you go back to Vegas odds on a football game or or finance doing large, large, large amounts of transactions, the real interesting part is that they're facilitating activity and taking a tiny cut in the middle, and that adds up to huge dollars over time. Right. So the part I tend to wonder about, and I'm not sure there's a right or wrong answer about this, is how expensive is that provision of service? Mm. It's not very visually obvious, so I'm not sure if there's a good way to think about whether it's cheap or expensive, is it too expensive, is it appropriate? But there's this, this min- minuscule tax on activity right. that seems to exist in all sorts of industries and that's really what you're getting at when you're talking about how Vegas works, or how betting on sports works, mm-hmm. or how most financial transactions work.
0: Right. So, so just for um, listeners who don't know much about sports betting, because it took me a couple years to learn. Because unless you're actually betting, you know, you're not going to learn quickly. If you lose a lot of money, I think you learn pretty quickly how it works. But so, you know, when you're betting on a line, right? Like, say the Patriots are favored over the Broncos by three and a half. If you bet the line, it's always, for the most part, minus one ten, right? Or plus one ten, no minus one ten, but you're, but there's a basically a what a one dollar that includes like a convenience charge essentially, like you put down ten to win ten, but you're still having to pay the extra dollar. That's why it's one ten instead of one hundred. Now I'm confusing myself here. Yeah,
1: I, I, I would try to think of it in the simplest examples. Are Vegas is happy when everyone is matched off, and they just happen to make a little for providing the service. So the example you made where if the Patriots are favored by a touchdown, you have a lot of people betting on the Patriots to win by a touchdown. You have a lot of people betting on the Patriots to lose or you know win by less than a touchdown or mm-hmm. lose outright. Mm-hmm. And Vegas is happy if the exact same number of folks bet one side versus the other because they're charging you a dollar and ten cents to win a dollar. So that's that 10% where, hey, if you and I each bet opposite sides, I bet the Patriots are gonna win by less than a touchdown or lose outright and you bet they're gonna win by more than a touchdown. No matter what one of us wins and the other loses, Vegas doesn't really care which of us wins. Right. But each of us put up a dollar ten for the chance of winning a dollar. So one of us is gonna win a dollar from the other who paid a dollar ten right. and Vegas keeps $0.10 cents in the
0: middle. Well, and what's what's even crazier with, with the sort of exponential way that sports betting is increasing and growing and expanding is that that $0.10, cents, it gets to the point, there's so many bets that Vegas can actually lose and end up with 49% victory uh, margin and still make money because of all those $0.10, cents, right? Yeah, I mean... You're, not lose, you're I don't mean at- lose, I mean, you know, not... They they could end up on a one given week in football, you know, winning only quote unquote only forty nine point five percent, let's say, of the totals. But when you add all the convenience charges or whatever you want to call it, they still end up on top or Ken.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and the point that that is hidden inside what you just got to is that it's never as clean as the scenario I laid out because Vegas, like any business, wants to keep its customers happy. So I laid out a scenario where you and I are perfectly matched, and they don't care who wins. But sometimes a third person comes up and they just don't have, no matter what they do, if they move the line or change the odds, they don't have anyone to take the opposite side of that. Mm-hmm. And there's some extent to which Vegas is taking risk just to let a person put a bet down. And that's where they can end up, to your example, you know, only winning 49% on a week, um, which is a slight oversimplification. But in general, they can end up losing on bets. Or no matter what they try to do, by moving the lines or changing the odds to get folks to evenly match up and change incentives so mm. that more people jump in on one side versus another, mm-hmm. sometimes they're still just not evenly matched, and they could get totally screwed on that.
0: <laughs> right. Right. This is fascinating. Uh, I don't want to this too long, but I, you know, you're know, you by far the most qualified of my friends, I believe, by far, to answer these sports betting questions. And I really learned everything I know about sports betting from the great Bill Simmons. May he rest in peace in terms of ESPN, although it looks like he's going to go to HBO, which would be awesome. he Loves sports betting he has sports betting especially with football podcasts all the time and they're hilarious to listen to not because of the, the numbers but because him and his buddies come up with all of these ridiculous rationales of doing like three-team teases and stuff they talk themselves into these ridiculous bets just for fun and they have the money i think he was making like five million a year at espn or whatever but um what what is a tease for our audience just to give a little sense of sports betting like how would you describe a, a, a tease or a three-team tease or something like that?
1: Um, In general, a tease allows you to purchase the right to make the odds a little better or the line a little better, but you're paying with something else. So a tease could be paying more cash to get better odds, Mm -hmm. or a tease could be combining bets or changing the line on one game to match another. Um, So all those parts get fun, and to be quite honest, I haven't bet on really bet on sports in 10, 15 years, but not since college. I I used to bet on football a bunch in college. But but you just get
0: gambling, though. That's that's why I'm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I
1: I like the thinking about it. But to get to the point that I actually think is really fun is when you take some of that mindset outside of sports or official gambling or anything like that. Mm. And we do that all the time here in our social lives, things that my wife and I do and things that we've helped introduce other friends to, which is thinking about setting fair over-unders for stupid things in life and betting about it with friends.
0: (laughs) I do that all the time, by the way. I do over-unders constantly. Go ahead.
1: So this has taken a little hand walking with a lot of friends out here but as soon as someone gets it then they get it forever which is that someone says hey i'll bet that's not going to happen or i'll bet you know the baby's going to be before born before july 23rd or something like that and slowly we have led a lot of our friends to realize that you can either set the line or you can choose over or under but not both Hmm. and as soon as everyone gets that idea where it says okay look this is how you get kept honest. You can tell me that you think the fair date the baby is going to be born is July 23rd. I'm making the date up. You know, Maybe that's the d- baby's due date. Or you know, maybe the parents are convinced that the baby is a week or two older than the <laughs> calculation. Today, so that's the fair amount of info, whatever it is. But the point is you get to set where the line is and uh-huh. the other person gets to pick which side they want. And that's how you keep it fair. Right. But we do this all the time and we're always betting stupid things like yeah. just like hey, whatever, you know, loser buys the winner a beer. Right. Or we're going to do something silly because that's the kind of stuff where it's so fun to think about. It doesn't really matter who wins. And quite frankly, there have been tons of times where I've lost one of those stupid bets and taken a find out for a beer and we both won because we got to go hang out and get exactly. a beer.
0: exactly.
1: Exactly when you take it outside of the official sports context and you just start applying that stuff to regular life.
0: I love that, and you've probably uh, thought of this, but not only are you applying the over-under to non-sports things, but you're also bringing in prop bets, essentially, right? Which I love the idea of prop bets. Prop bets, for those out there who don't know, are very specific bets um, that can be serious. Like in the Super Bowl, you can bet you know, which team will throw the first touchdown, or will Gronkowski, you know, catch for over 80 yards, but there's also prop bets of, you know, how long is Beyonce going to sing the national anthem for, or, like, they have a fullback that's been on the bench the entire season, over under two yards, and actually, people won a lot of money on that bet a couple of years ago um, with the Giants, but point being, you know, prop bets can be as ridiculous as you want to make them, but you can bet on anything in this world, and I don't know what the numbers are these days. I think it's in the trillions for sports betting. I, I could be wrong. I don't know if you've seen anything, um, but, yeah, talk about a growth industry. My God. Um, and uh, I, <laughs> did, When you were in finance, did you have a lot of coworkers who gambled a lot?
1: Um, You certainly hear an undercurrent of it, but I don't think any more or less than I hear anywhere else. I mean, we talk about sports a lot, sure. but that's part of general culture. Like for example, I can remember having tons of conversations about fantasy football with people, but I don't find that any different than conversations I've had about that with other folks that are outside of work or other people from different work. Right. So not necessarily sure that's any different in finance per se, although maybe at least stereotypically I can see why it might be just presumed that everyone in finance is gambling more right. or more into sports, competitive or things like that. Some of which might be true. But I certainly don't have any even anecdotal evidence to uh,
0: suggest that. No, uh, that makes sense. I, I mean, I wonder if, if, if sports gambling is, is the lottery effect, you know, which is that it's actually like middle and even working class people who, even though they're only gambling in the, you know, dozens or hundreds, there are so many of them that that's really where the money is Coming from. Like, you have guys like Charles Barkley who openly drop, you know, like a hundred thou on, like, any finals game or boxing match or whatever. But reality is, I could be wrong about this. It seems like a lot of that money is coming from, you know, quote unquote average American, well, men mostly, probably some women. Um, I just asked that because of just because of the you know, the gambling aspects. Well, you know, the problem with me is I have finance wrapped into this idea in my head where I don't understand anything, and I, I don't know how the sort of um, the, the hierarchy works or whatever. Uh, so when, when, you were, when you were working in finance, first of all, is there a more specific term I should use? Because I know that your work, it wasn't like you were all over the map. Was there a specific title or something, or just keep it general?
1: Uh, I think finance is appropriate. I worked on the public side at a couple different investment banks, okay. but I wasn't necessarily in what people call banking, because that right. usually uh, is, is what is also called the private side. So right. it wasn't mergers and acquisitions or anything like that. I always worked in jobs that were connected to the public markets. Right. Uh, in general, I think finance is fine. It's an overall world, and I don't see any reason why that's more or less descriptive than other pair
0: terms. But I guess just from a cultural standpoint, I, I mean, it seems like, again, I don't want to generalize. You probably know that Philly is actually a big finance city, or, or at least it's a much bigger finance city than people might assume for Philadelphia. Um, a and lot the of. Port- lo- is absolutely. Oh, yeah. And trust me, as my neighborhood. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, as my neighborhood is growing here and is gentrifying, while well, it's great for my property values, there's a lot of douchebags moving in everywhere, because they're either lawyers or finance guys. And no offense lawyers or finance guys, I have a lot of friends, but these are not the cool kind that you associate it with. These are the mid-level, you know, like don't know what to do out of college, I wasn't going anywhere, moving on up, which is the opposite of you, where you moved up pretty quickly, maybe we'll talk about that later, but, you know, these are the, the douchey ones, and let's be honest, there's douchebags everywhere, it's just Philadelphia happens to attract douches, but, um, you know, I mean, these people do tons of cocaine, they spend tons of money on clothes, they, they get wasted, I mean, you know, it's like the exact opposite of your personality, your, your culture, did you... Was one of the reasons you left finance the culture of it? Or was it purely sort of professional, like, I just need a new challenge. I got to get out of here and try something new.
1: Quite frankly, it was none of the above. Mm. I left because I had a really interesting opportunity to go into spirits. And I was very excited to do something entrepreneurial. But it wasn't that I was looking to leave finance. And I also am really glad to be able to honestly say that most of the folks I dealt with in my finance career we're not those stereotypical coke in the bathroom clubbing douches, that right?
0: Well, and about. that's why that's why I put the disclaimer on it because that was my m- my impression of my memory was that that was the case. I feel like I would have remembered crazy stories if the, if there were some. That never seemed to be a problem uh, for you. I think in
1: general, finance is a massive industry with a ton of huge players, and any large industry like that is going to have a lot of salespeople and some of the bad apples in sales are like the worst examples of some of those things that you're talking about, and they become very memorable. I don't necessarily know if there are more total A-hole D-bags in finance than anywhere else, but I certainly know that you know, the ones that are there become very memorable and you know, lead to a bad rap. <laughs> Right. But I, I always found it really interesting because people would ask, oh, what's that like that so doesn't fit what you used to study or right, what you background right, right, which we'll get to. Anything right, yeah. Like that. yeah. Quite frankly, I worked for and with a number of really interesting and smart people yeah. that led me to ask questions and think about stuff in new ways. I couldn't have asked for a better challenge and a better career. And I think there's a lot of that in finance and probably a lot of other places that doesn't necessarily get touted because mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it does, it's not going to grab the headlines on a paper, and it's not going to be this or that, and it's all part of what makes an industry hold together. But it's not necessarily the part that becomes prevalent and on the front page.
0: No, exactly, and I think to sort of answer my own question, or 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 address it at least, and, and follow up on what you're saying is that the. Um, proportionality of douchebaggery I think is equally spread across society. Can we agree on that? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So we've got equivalent douchebaggery. However... People in finance and law have the money to rub it in your face, or, or at least, you know, spend and act so excessively that you notice it. You know, if you're, you know, a trash collector, God bless you, and you're, you know, a douche, like we're probably not going to see it unless I end up in some bar in like deep South Philly and get in a fight or something, right? Uh, so it's yeah. just, it's just the, you know, the bars that I go to in Philly. You know, I, I like going to dive bars, but sometimes you want to go to a decent bar and it's just a lot of people in polo shirts and khakis and stuff. Just not my culture. And some of them are nice guys. So I think it's just that they rub it in your face. uh, Just as a quick sort of life example from another country, when I lived in Botswana, uh, which is a very small but pretty rich uh, African country, very stable, they have a lot of diamond wealth, but they're a democracy, whatever. So there's a lot of immigrants there from all, all over the world, especially Asia, Middle East, Europe. Other parts in Africa, and I'm not going to name names when it comes to ethnic groups or cultures. But needless to say, some of the foreigners felt the need to buy hundred thousand dollar sports cars and drive all over town, basically throwing money out of the windows of their cars. And the local people, you know, did not love these these individuals. Even though there are a lot of immigrants, um, or I shouldn't say immigrants, there are a lot of uh, expats or foreigners who were making, um, you know, tons of money there because they're just better educated, and better resources than the the locals have, unfortunately. But it's sort of the rubbing it in your face thing. So I, I guess I was just. Curious about whether that was a factor. It didn't really seem to be a factor for you leaving. So just to sort of tie this one up, what? But let me. Let oh, me sure. Been there. Yes.
1: It has been a very interesting factor in what's kept us here in Vermont.
0: So that's sort of where I was going. I Keep was going. Never,
1: I was never trying to leave New York, and if anything, my wife still jokes about how I used to say many years ago, "I'm never leaving," and you know, if we're staying together. You know, you, you better understand that I'm not going anywhere. I'm a New Yorker born and raised. This is in my blood. So, you know, let's let's talk about this now. I'm, I'm talking, you know, this is years before we were married. This mm. is just hacking out important life decisions. And mm. of course, years later we live in Vermont and we bought a house up here, we were married up here and, and we really love our life up here. And there is a palpable difference when I drive back into New York City now. That sometimes it just boils my blood, and I realize either I didn't pay attention to it or I just didn't notice it as much without the contrast. Because look, there are wealthy people anywhere you go, and in Vermont they don't seem to be rubbing your
0: nose in it.
1: Like here, yeah, there's a lot of people that have money, and it almost feels like it's hidden in a sense.
0: Because ben and Jerry, baby, food. love our boys yeah, Ben and well, Jerry, who, who love... life, yeah, they're,
1: they're the few folks that are really. Know, hit it big. But yeah, overall, but they live very humbly
0: overall, too. But go ahead.
1: Absolutely true. Yeah. And I think that's an example. Um, but the point is, it's not just folks that have hit it as big as they have. It's also folks right. that are just doing really well and able to retire or semi retire or whatever it is. But, you know, they're still putting their hiking boots on and going hiking because Vermont's a beautiful place to do that. And they're driving a Subaru because that's what you drive in Vermont because it's got all wheel drive. It's not mm-hmm. about who has the fanciest, most expensive car. It's actually about a practicality that is part of the way of life here and that contrast for me where for example we were driving into new york a couple weeks ago for a business trip and we're not stuck in traffic traffic is moving but it's moving slowly as we're about forty five minutes or an hour outside of the city proper right and i'm getting cut off by a woman in alexis who was behind me who pulls over to get into the on-ramp to pass me and one other car in front of us to cut <laughs> us off so that she can be 20 feet closer to New York when we're all in the same traffic, that's and I kind of forgot, oh yeah, here, you drive that Lexus and you think you're a better person than me. Whether it's because you make a lot of money and you think that's great, or you don't, but you choose to be ostentatious and show the money that you kind of have, but it's all really BS and right. built on debt and whatever else, people are so competitive and showy about how much better than you they are, and yep. that's not true everywhere in New York. But it's this contrast that as soon as I notice the silence of how much it doesn't exist in Vermont, I now notice it when I go back to New York this little undercurrent that is just not part of our life, and it's so refreshing to not have that be part of our
0: life. And it is it is an amazing realization. Um, Smiley and Andreas and I talk about this all the time. Uh, Smiley and I talked about it in a few podcasts ago, but we're actually going to do a whole New York City podcast with Dre. You're welcome to come join the party if you want. We're going to talk about all this stuff. Um, and But two years after graduation, if you had told me that Pretty much all of us will have left New York, you know, permanently or, or at least you know semi-permanently. I would not have believed it, especially um, sort of the two groups. One, our friends like you, who were born and grew up in New York. You and Raquel, and you know we have a whole bunch of friends. You have obviously a million more, having grown up there. Um, some of whom have become my friends. Um, and quick sidebar, <clears throat> Sivan and I, were freshmen, freshman uh, roommates, we actually both took a year off in Israel in separate programs and discovered later that we had a million friends in common, including some of his friends from New York, which is one of those weird, crazy stories. Life works out that way. But anyways, point being, so you the people who were born in New York who I would figure never would leave, and you were on the list, buddy. I mean, I I was like, there's no way Sivan's not going to live in New York. And even me, for the first two or three years, I was like, even if I leave, I'm coming back, and now I can't imagine it. Even though I love visiting it, and there's lots of things I love about it, but the competition thing is there, whether it's dating, or art, or fashion, or anything. Um, it's actually interesting, New York's the one city where no one drives, and so you have to show off like with your fashion, because you can't be driving your fancy car around, because no one has cars, um, unlike LA, where apparently that's a thing. I, I've never been to LA, but... Um, and so, yeah, New York is crazy like that. And so would you say, uh, I hate using the blessing in disguise thing cause, eh, you know, but are you kind of glad the way things worked out, even though you weren't hating your previous work, but now that you are in Vermont, it sounds like you're kind of glad with the progression of, of how things have worked out for you personally and professionally.
1: Yeah. And I have to say, I think there's something very meditative about being able to listen and to be in the mm. zone with wherever you are in life to hear these opportunities that are knocking and just go with the flow. It's something I've been really proud of and happy about that a lot of these things that have happened weren't the obvious next step to what I was doing before or something that was planned out years ahead of time. I'm very much a planner, but a lot of what I'm working on, I'm always trying to think, what's going to leave the most and best set of options out there. Not all of it is stuff that you can take credit for. Sometimes it just falls in your lap. Totally. But I just think it's been so cool to be at least open-minded enough to say, yeah, that actually sounds really interesting. So I'm going to check that out. And that's not always a huge career decision. Sometimes that's just some new thing that becomes a hobby or some new friend you make that's very different from other folks you knew because X, Y, or Z happens. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one of the better lessons i've learned in life and one of the things i feel a lot better about as i don't know what i I, I always feel it's weird to call ourselves adults but as someone in my 30s versus when i was a dickhead teenager (laughs) i feel like i'm better at listening to those things and Uh, that's awesome
0: that's awesome Um, yeah dude it's so funny that's the stuff you're saying um so I did, uh, you were supposed to be BizzleCast9, by the way, but now, because of how things turned out, you're number 10, uh, so congrats to me, and thanks for being a part of it that I've made it to double digits. Um, BizzleCast10, here with my boy Sivan Cotel, met at Wesleyan University, we're talking about his life, and his work, and sports gambling, and finance, and all sorts of stuff, but I did an interview with Smiley the other night, because he just got a big book deal for his second um book with like with like penguin random house like a real legitimate you know advance the whole thing book deal so we wanted to celebrate and talk about it a little bit but we talked about how as talented and smart as millennials are they're even more add than we are and we especially when we're in like a new york city situation i mean i'm on my phone all freaking day but last week i went with um uh Lulu our friend Lulu from Wesleyan Lulu and I went to a uh yoga ashram in upstate New York that you know I've been to a couple times before and it had been many years, and I fell back into the routine so quick and within you know three hours, my desire to be constantly look at my phone looking at my phone and all that stuff was gone, like I wasn't even thinking about it, you know so beautiful it's in the mountains, you hear all the you know the crickets and the birds and the and the sound there's a light rain and you know meditating and yoga, and so you know i I, I so can see the appeal, especially when you have an awesome wife, like Sass, by the way. Sivan's wife is, is fucking great. Uh, but, uh, I you, could not have before. but thank you. Yeah, yeah, shout out to Sass. Uh, Sass, we'll get you on the next one. Um, but, uh, so it helps when you have that. It helps when you have some friends, but the point being, I, there are times when I'm so cynical about people and their devices, and yet... I hear your experience and my own experience whenever I, you know, go out to the woods for a couple days or go to the ashram is that you can rebound from it pretty quickly if you have the will and you're in the right environment. And so, you know part of the problem is, it's great that you're in Vermont, but it also would be great if people like us could be in cities and contribute to it, if that makes sense. I guess what I'm saying is, is there any way for us to sort of, as we sort of take this conversation next level, to survive device culture, but still live in in cities or, or urban environments that are causing a lot of the stresses that it seems like we're causing you, we're definitely causing me in New York, and I'm not totally away from in Philly. How, how do you balance those two? Or or you can't, you just have to, you just move to Vermont and just build a life there?
1: No, I, I don't think you need to escape just to live a healthier life. Right. I think in my case, they've been correlated where having gotten out of New York was also part of many other great things that were happening, and that's led to a path that I've been really appreciative of. But, It's not necessarily the case that all hope is lost in New York or LA or any of the other cities that are the mega cities or smaller cities or anywhere else. I know so many folks that are doing really interesting, fun things in New York, just like I know folks doing interesting, fun things elsewhere. There's, there's always a balance and there is a challenge, especially in a place like New York where things are so expensive or other of the major cities. I mean, Philly is catching up to New York and then you look at, it's
0: so expensive here now, man. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. But you know, that's, that's part of life, and sometimes you have to figure out how to balance the parts that you do or don't care about. But at the same token, I see so many people who aren't trying to be the guy that makes a bazillion dollars day one and has a fancy car and a Rolex and whatever else, and they're doing what they need to do to get by while doing things that they believe in and having fun in life. And there's something really inspiring about that where it can be done in places where you don't have the financial pressures of New York, but it can also be done in places where you do have the financial pressures of a place like New York. That's a really nice thing to see. I don't know if it's accelerating or decelerating in the sense that I don't know if there are more or less people doing that these days, but you certainly see the examples, and I wouldn't necessarily just jump to the conclusion that all hope is lost.
0: No, no, that's not, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm trying not to jump to that conclusion. My point is not that all hope is lost, and my point isn't that people aren't doing great stuff in cities. In fact, you know, it's a lot easier to do great stuff in cities than out of it, right? I mean, you've really had to carve your own little niche there. In New York, in theory, there's a million great opportunities there, and we have tons of friends doing, you know, everything from social justice to law to medicine to teaching to whatever all over the place, and especially in New York and San Francisco and Boston and a couple other cities. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just talking about the psychological fallout of the insane amount of stimuli that goes into your brain in one day of New York City versus one day in Vermont in the way that you have, you were able to sort of quantify earlier and talk about just listening, for example. You forget how to listen. You forget how to think. And you know, I think it's a personality thing. I think some people can completely compartmentalize it. They can enjoy and love New York and not be overtaken by it. Or there's people like me who just can't take it and live in Philly, which is still a city, but, you know, it's way more laid back than New York for the most part. And I wonder if we're facing a new stage of evolution here where society is basically going to be filtering out individuals who can't compartmentalize that because of the urbanization of youth and, you know, and increase of technology and whatever. Meaning, say you have every qualification in the world to be vice president at a major bank, right? But the one thing you don't have is the ability to stay sane in a city situation. Really what I'm saying is, you know, like, are overwhelmed by multitasking, you know, you and I were using computers very early on, but multitasking has really become a problem for me over the past few years, now there's outside reasons for that as well, but it's the it's the whole multitasking culture I guess I'm trying to get at here and, you know, when we meditate at the ashram they talk about how, you know, read one book at a time, I have like five books on my night table and you know, what kind of liberation it is to be able to really do one task at a time, not to be constantly distracted, I was constantly distracted in New York, and I guess that's where I was sort of getting at, is sort of the psychological fallout of, you know, hyper-urbanization meets hyper-technology. Does any of this make sense, buddy?
1: Yeah, but what I'd like to see is that some of the lessons that can be learned that we're talking about here, I'd like to see them applied in more context, Hmm. because the things you're talking about can be done in a place like New York that is absolutely very busy very visually busy, very auditorily busy, it's very difficult to zone out and get peace of mind in a place that busy. Right. But there are some great lessons there with simple ideas, like you're saying. Focus on one task and do it right. You still have many tasks to do, but you don't necessarily need all of them buzzing in your head at once. If you can find a way, whether it's discipline or practice or other you know, techniques that help you focus on one thing and do it well and quiet the other stuff until you're ready to get to the other stuff. I think some of that can be very fulfilling, whether you are someone who's peripatetic and extremely busy, or you're someone who's lethargic and only does a couple things, and neither of those necessarily need to translate into success or failure, but that in different personality types and personality styles, we all have to learn our own lessons. I do agree with not your your general implied worry, but the ideas that can be taken out of other contexts and my personal hope, and it's odd that I'm less cynical than I was when we lived together in college or anything else. Oh, yeah. But I I'm more cynical and you're less. And it's hope. hilarious.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, would you have been able to have these same realizations the last few years if you were in New York? I know that's totally a um, hypothetical and counter-historical question, because you at least implied that there were some things that Vermont was providing for you that you weren't getting elsewhere, right?
1: Well... Yeah, but some of those are things that I see now in contrast. So hindsight's always 2020, um, 20 but in a more focused way, I'd say if you can be happy with where you're at now, you can always see how you got there. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know where you're going. The future is always unwritten, and there's all these crazy things going on. I guess the future is not unwritten when you're in a time loop like John the your podcast. John but Cotter. in general... John It's not that living in New York, I would have been, I mean, who knows, it's all hypothetical, but I was quite happy in my life in New York, and I was quite happy with where things were going and everything that was going on. And, you know, I already had staff in my life then, and that was one of the best things in my life at the time, and it's still one of the best things in my life now. So whether we're in Vermont or New York, I think there's a lot of lessons you can learn no matter where you are. And if you can do that right, then you can feel good no matter what the situation is.
0: Right, and, and you know, and this is where the time loops come in because it's like, well, if you don't meet SAS a does that offer from Vermont ever come up, <laughs> or if it does, do you take it if SAS isn't there? And these are impossible questions to answer. Well,
1: I'll tell you much, much more real things that actually are. The, you know, the influences is that meeting a partner who I loved and cared about, and who is also a very bubbly and nice person, has led me to be a much nicer person. And so while I still have a very cynical and analytical brain, I'm just more polite now. I'm nice to people. I make friends easier, more easily. Uh, Things like that that have changed. And and I think some of them were naturally happening anyway. Matt and I were just talking about this this week. But even before I met her, I had started holding doors for people, which... As little as that sounds, I remember that being a very clear contrast in my life when <laughs> it was like right. just starting to learn how to intentionally try to do even little acts of kindness throughout the day for strangers. Right. And I think, you know, having the ability to have a partner that makes you happy and helps you be nicer to others and better to others, I think those are the things that help you grow and that was already happening for us in our life in New York. Mm. So Things like that, I can definitely put a finger on and see, like, the definite influence that happened mm-hmm. as one event led to another and some things that have really changed me as a person and therefore have also changed the world around me. But that stuff happens anywhere you go.
0: Absolutely. But, you know, I think the, the holding the door thing, um, you know, there are people that don't do it all the time, uh, like you and I, even though we try to, just because we forget or aren't thinking about it. And then there are people who are just genuinely assholes, right? And so... Like what you're describing, I think it's just a process of growing up that we both are still doing. We've accomplished a lot in that area. Um, As for cynicism, you know, I was joking that you used to be a cynic and now I am, but we're really not cynics by the true definition. I mean, we for the most part believe at least in human, positive human potential. Is that fair to say?
1: I think so,
0: yeah. And and that there is a level of free will out there, and that you know people can make decisions. I don't know if you checked out the Taoism podcast. I talk a lot about that there, um, and so that's just things you learn along the way, and I think that's great. And uh, I, I think it, when we get uh, to the end, I would love to just to jump back to the to the uh, to the spirits thing and give people a little taste, <laughs> so to speak, of of what's going on now. But I did want to jump. As sort of we push ourselves towards the heady issues, which we knew were coming, and I want to get to with you, and the challenge here will be not to talk until like three in the morning, but I think I came up with a good transition, which is, I, I know you listen to the Terminator podcast, um, so... This is BizzleCast 10, I guess. BizzleCast 8 was a very long, but I thought fun for me at least. Retrospective on the Terminator franchise that really came down to just discussing ideas of time travel, artificial intelligence, and also the TV property, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was just really freaking awesome. It didn't last nearly long enough. Sivan and I both loved that show, um, and so he listened to that. And I love talking about these issues, but in college, to 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 you know wind the clock back here a little bit. So we are roommates freshman year. And Sivan is an awesome musician. We've got a lot of friends who are musicians. Um, you weren't a music major, correct? Or like a double major with music? I was. Yeah. Oh, you were a double I major. Was, major. A oh, double. that's right. You had the you had right. the um, the thesis performance, which was awesome. Sivan did a music thesis project so Wesleyan where we went to school is a great music school both if you want to just do straight up jazz or classical but also world music also you know we've got West African drumming and dancing we've got Indonesian music we've got a full gamelan if you don't know what a gamelan is just uh, google G-A-M-E-L-A-N and it's really hard to describe it's basically an instrument from Indonesia that needs like 50 people to play it at once and I'm gonna jump
1: in there on a a tangent before you continue because one of the things that was so awesome about being music major at Wesleyan and this same idea is something that we touched on earlier and I've been really lucky to think of in many aspects of my life then and since mm-hmm. is that as a music major they not necessarily forced but very 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 heavily handedly encouraged you to focus on some form of music that was different from your official focus. It's almost like a major and a minor within your major. Right. So. As someone who was a jazz guitarist and most of everything that I was working on was focused around jazz or something in that context, that you have this strong encouragement to study some world music. In my case, I spent a lot of time on Indian music. Other friends of ours spent a lot of time on African music or all these kind of things. I think that's such a great encouragement because I'll tell you, when I started studying Indian music and wrapping my head around rhythms. And having our drumming teacher explain to us that the rhythms in Indian music to him were more about shapes and having these long philosophical conversations about what it means to have a square inscribed inside a pentagon.
0: Interesting. And those
1: are music conversations, but they're all about visual imagery. Stuff like that really helped me be a better jazz musician, for one, but also helped me expand how I thought about things in general. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the coolest parts about A, that music program. B, probably overall a liberal arts education, but C, trying to take that lesson through into life in general, where if you can be asking questions, if you can be asked questions, and if you can find all new right. ways to think about things, you end up finding that they feed back into the other stuff you're doing. It could be work stuff, it could be fun stuff, it could be that work is fun stuff, whatever it is that all these other things you do that keep your mind engaged can be really great influences on the other things you do that have your mind engaged.
0: Absolutely, and <laughs> amen, uh, touche. Music programs amazing. South Indian music's incredible. Uh, listeners out there, um, if you're not, you know, that into or, or you just haven't really explored a lot of music from around the world. I'm a little biased because our our company is a lot of African musicians, but they're like young guys who are like blues rock, you know, stars. Uh, you can check out our stuff, but. For Indian music, there is a great project out there, which Sivan is aware of, called Shakti from back in the day, which basically combines, I don't know if he's the greatest, but by far the most famous um, Indian percussionist that's still alive, Zakir like Hussain, wouldn't you say? He was, I mean, mm-hmm. and, uh, and John McLaughlin, a Western guitar player who has pretty much... Killed it in every genre known to man that's possible to play on guitar, from flamenco, jazz, all the way to Indian music. Check it out, Shakti. It's very accessible. But, anyways, uh, uh, Wesleyan amazing music program. And, you know, pretty much all of our friends were musical in some way or another. We all played guitar or bass. And, you know, our, our buddy Adam, we had a lot of friends who sang in acapella groups and whatever. We were. Uh, I'm not sure we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but we for the first couple of years of college, we were buddies with the Ben and Andrew, who are the two main guys in MGMT, who at that point were called the management. and you know, we they were great guys. We thought they were a little crazy, but you know, they were crazy geniuses. and uh, so the music culture really all interacted there. And so music was a big part of, your life at that point. Um, now, sometime in software junior year, though, you started getting very serious about other studies. I'm thinking mostly of anthropology. So what was sort of going on there, sort of mid-college experience, where you still were exploring music a lot and taking classes and writing and taking lessons, but you had some other sort of interests coming, um, coming up out of the ether or whatever?
1: Yeah. Well, first off, just a slight aside in there, mm. I, I don't like when when folks from Wesley claim credit for the management guys, because I feel like they have some amazing successes that they deserve. Oh no, and I
0: said they're crazy. I'm not claiming it. I, I never thought they were going to be successful. And, and
1: everyone wants to point out how much they knew those guys. It's fine. They're great dudes, but just just the point being, eh, we we've got enough other stuff going on. We don't need to happen. We be name dropping them.
0: Oh but no, it's it was it, it I, the point for me name dropping them and a lot of by the way these days a lot of people don't even know who they are because they've been out of the game for a relatively long time. The point I was making was that. You know, there was just a very diverse musical culture that went all the way from Indian music to African music to jazz to hipster music. I, I didn't really frame it properly. I was—that was supposed to be a transition to talk about hipst- how indie rock was kind of being born when we were in school, and there was sort of a split there, I, I think, musically between us and some of that stuff. But we were still buddies. Was really the point I was making. I could care less that they're famous. Um, I still only know three of their songs and only have their first album. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, yeah. If, if there's one thing I want to take
1: credit for more, it's that in yes. our era when we were at Wesleyan was when PBR was starting to grow yeah. up. <laughs> we used to buy PBR in those bar boxes that weren't even sealed and they were meant to be like, easily flip-openable so you can just grab a bottle uh, out of it. happened to buy it because it was like the cheapest thing you could get, but was also in a bottle, so it tasted a little better than oh, the yeah. crap in it- a Oh yeah, I feel like maybe we, we we should somehow get dividends from the multiple times the PBR has been sold for increasing amounts of money. They should pay it back to those <laughs> of us who were there at the beginning.
0: But your guys' band should have just been called PBR. I think that would have been a win all around.
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, answer your original question. Yes. Um. So I, I think very parallel to a lot of folks' college experience in general, where people don't really know what they want to study, then they end up figuring out what they want to study through some path while they're there, I always knew that I wanted to study music, but at the same time that I didn't want music to be the only thing I was going to do, sure. I never wanted to have something that was going to pollute music for me. I didn't want to end up resenting music over time Which because it wasn't paying attention.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. So, so while I knew from day one that I was going to be a music major, and that was one of the things that had drawn me to Wesleyan in the first place, I also knew from even before day one that I had to find something else to at least satisfy my own curiosity and passion, to find something else that would hopefully become a career. So that started with anthropology, which you you remember correctly. I had taken a Mm -hmm. a primatology course early on and found that so cool and I was really interested. And if the department in anthropology there had been a little more focused on primates, I probably would have continued and I would have been anthropology and a music double major. But it turns out that the department there is much more focused on cultural anthropology, not so much on non-human right. primates, which is what I was interested in. Right. So I kind of kept searching And that really brought me to some of the psychology courses I started taking. And before I know it, before I knew it, I was really into psych, which is funny since that's much more similar to cultural anthropology than it is to non-human primates, right. although they certainly all overlap. right. Um, I spent most of my college career focusing very intently on music and psychology and other things that were connected to those. I, mean, I took some neuroscience, there were some other things that tied to them, at least thematically. My focus in psych was all about memory. It wasn't necessarily uh, sit on the couch and tell me your problem psychology. It was about experimental psychology and how the brain works. And I was really lucky to find a professor that I liked working with, who mm-hmm. I'm still close with to this day. Mm-hmm. I was lucky to do some research. And next thing I knew, I was a double major, I also did a master's, all of it was was combined in five years, so it was, uh, you know, senior year, was also the first year of my master's. So I got to do some really cool stuff, publish some papers, do some things that were really interesting, and also, I still think of this as something very lucky, although it's led to a lot of left turns in my life, it ended up being enough to help me decide that that wasn't what I wanted to do forever. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. as I was finishing my master's in psych, I was already accepted into a couple of great PhD programs, and I was very excited about them. I was choosing between basically my top two choices, so I, I was extremely geeked about it. And in the process of choosing which of those I should go to, it really helped me realize that I didn't exactly want to do either. They're both things that I would have loved to have done for a couple of years, but not, I think, what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So that led me to do other things. And, you know, A to B to C to D to E, I mean, oh, it's yeah. from there that I went. And, and you finance. know.
2: Went.
1: So, uh, things happen all the time, but life can be crazy. But I'm still so glad and fortunate for some of those crazy opportunities that have come up that just lead right. you to expand your mind in different ways. Mm-hmm. And they all end up tying one to the next.
0: Well, I was going to say about <laughs> about uh, A to B to C to D and, and just your personality is that, my reaction with each of your decision, major decisions has been exactly the same, which is, initially, I'm like, what the fuck is he doing? <laughs> and then, is surely followed by, oh, that makes total sense. So, when you applied to the you know a PhD program, I was like, are you kidding me? You, academic? I was like, yeah, actually, I can kind of see it. And then, I won't mention it, but Sivan got into a couple of really good programs, and then, when he turned them down, I was like... What the hell are you doing? And went to finance. Oh, that kind of makes sense. And the same thing with Vermont. And, you know, which basically shows that my first instinct is usually wrong <laughs> on a lot of things. And yours have been right for the most part, it seems like. Um, although, you know, you have to imagine occasionally what it would have been like to be studying psychology on such a high level. Because I know that's something you're still interested in, and I assume it's a read about, right?
1: Totally. I think about this stuff all the time, and I'm always lucky to catch a lecture or read an abstract of something. It's actually fun, this is an odd, you know, you, you, t- you talk about some of your other podcasts, all these weird sub-worlds that are popping up in places. There's some of these websites that you wouldn't even know about unless they happen to touch your life in a germane way. Right. And there's this weird website that tracks, I think it's just psychology papers and authors. It's like a social network for psychology researchers and maybe it's more than psych, it might be all science in general, I don't know, I got like an automatic invite to it at some point because uh, someone who's a co-author of one of my papers was on it because they're still active in the field. It's one of those weird things, you get the automatic invite, you're invited because you're an author on this paper too. Next thing I know, I'm getting these emails all the time that's like your paper was downloaded by three more people and you go look (laughs) at the stats and two people in the Netherlands and one person in China what the hell are these people doing reading a paper about memory that I published 10 years ago? Right, right. But it's, it's really crazy how some of that stuff ends up hitting. And
0: that I've, is awesome, I by the way. That's really freaking cool.
1: It is cool, but the, the, the really fun part is that these little things in your life keep nibbling at the back of your brain in a way that is not distracting. I think it's actually very healthy. So whether you're intentionally seeking something out or suddenly you've just been invited automatically to this weird research website, I end up now seeing, for example, when other folks that I either published with or people that I crossed paths with because they were in a program with me at the same time or we were going to be in a program together before I decided not to do my PhD, I see when those people publish research and I'll get a chance to read the abstract or something like that. And it's nice how some of those things can keep you connected and grounded to where you were and keep that tied in to how it helps you be where you
0: are. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, my memory—you mentioned this, but from my memory, the main things you were interested in in your in your field in college, in your master's program—and they were not unrelated—were primates and memory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, why these two topics? Was it Did it just... You said you had a professor that you love. Obviously, in, in school, you, you take classes that you end up being way more interested in than you think. Um, so, if that's the case, that's fine. But you did get very serious about them. Um, I guess, you know, just what attracted you um, to them, and especially with memory, because you ended up using memory as the basis for your musical thesis. We might be a little... Uh, uh, it, Uh, far afield to make that connection here, but needless to say, these were things that were interesting you on a sort of personal level as well as professional level.
1: Yeah, and I think also on a philosophical level, which is what helped draw me in in a captivating way. Um, When I was studying memory, the part that was so interesting and that we were focused on, and I'm lucky to have found a professor that was focused on this stuff, which is how it drew me in the first place, was Mm -hmm. really memory errors. And so much of the field that we were working in, you can really think of it like, by analogy, optical illusion. When we look at one of those 3D drawings that's just actually 2D on paper, but it pops out of the paper at you and you see it in 3D, it's not 3D. That's your brain messing up. Mm -hmm. It's 2D. It's drawing on a paper, but you can't not see it as a 3D box or one of those things. When you study those things, it helps you learn how the brain works by studying how it's screwing up. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was so interesting, this approach, this isn't just in memory, this is in cognitive psychology in general, but so many times when you start learning how when it doesn't work, that teaches you about how it works. That was such a cool way of thinking that to me, I had never wrapped my head around before, that it was so much fun studying memory errors, studying false memories, studying all these ways that our brains mess up, and that, There are so many instances, and we all deal with it anecdotally, when someone very emphatically tells you that X, Y, or Z happened, and you know it didn't happen because you were there, or you know it didn't happen the way they remember it, and you don't think that they're trying to embellish just to tell a good story. You can tell that they genuinely believe and remember something a certain way. Right. It was so cool to be spending time studying what the hell is going on in your brain that would lead you to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That... I just found that world so interesting, and it was very quick that I had gone from zero to 60 to get into it.
0: Absolutely. And so, you know, we we probably talked about uh, these philosophical scenarios at length at some point, probably at like three in the morning, whatever, but um, back in the day in college, but it's been a while. And so um, I was thinking about this leading up to this podcast with you, because I, I knew we, were, we were, We were going to talk about memory and your interest in it. And then, you know, just did the Terminator podcast, so I really have the AI thing going on in my brain. And so you talk about how we learn – correct me if I'm wrong. We essentially learn better by mistakes than successes, right, Um, in some ways. About learning from – like that learning from – Oh, what I was saying just now?
1: Yeah, that that we're able to learn how the brain works in many ways by studying – when it doesn't work, right? By exactly. learning and understanding how it screws up, that actually helps you work backwards and start to understand how it does work normally.
0: Okay, so my question is because the way you framed it, you're sort of talking about academically. If we look at how it misfires, we learn a lot from that. Okay, so I have two two part question here about that. A, can the individual apply this philosophy to themselves, or is it impossible because they're not objective? And B. Would sentient machines be a benefit or actually um, be harmed by n- not having memory problems? Essentially, assuming that there's no like you know errors in the software. In other words, we know that we can you know create a huge amount of data storage in a tiny little chip at this point, but we can't recreate the brain. One thing we know that a robot would have is lots of memory storage, but that doesn't make it smart, right? Or even sentient. And so, I guess what yeah, I'm saying look, is, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm go ahead. Got
1: into a new level, which is that look, data storage is cheaper now than it ever was, and you can store a ton of information. But even all the information in the world that you can store digitally in ones and zeros, right. No matter how much storage capacity you have, is not as rich as knowledge because of knowledge's interconnections. So there's a sense in which, and who knows? Because this is all conjecture,
2: right? But
1: to me a machine that is sentient or whatever sort of being that we're talking about here that has data storage is still not going to have necessarily perfect recollections of every single thing that ever happened or be like when we see some fictional character in Star Trek or something where they suddenly just download all the data from some database or you know it's in the fifth element and suddenly they just understand everything because they've downloaded all of history i don't think in practical reality that even a sentient machine or any other new being of that form would have the ability to just have unlimited storage, because even storage and processing power are going to be resources and commodities as they are now and into the future. So without necessarily putting a cap on what would be a practical amount of storage, I think the idea for me more in general is that anything working within those resources which will be finite to some extent whatever they are right. is gonna have to learn ways to adapt to work within those constraints. Right. That's what we do with the brain. We only have a certain amount of computing power and how our cells fire. We only have a certain amount of storage. I think it's a little more complex than that, obviously. But the way we think of that when we start to think of the brain like a computer, um, that one of the reasons the brain screws up is because it's so good at doing what it does. So many of the things we do are close approximations mm-hmm. of accuracy but they're not hundred percent accurate they're ninety nine point nine percent accurate with a tenth of the processing power required right. and that's a very good evolutionary adaptation even if we're not that point one percent accurate sometimes because overall we save so much on our human resources so that is a reason that we've evolved the way we are and I have to think that that by analogy, would also be part of how any other form of higher sentient being would also have to evolve, Mm -hmm. deal with its own constraints. So I'm not even sure that there would be a scenario in which a machine has perfect memory of everything, and then we get the chance, the luxury, to ask the philosophical question of whether that's better or worse for them and their quote-unquote life. Because I actually don't think that's how it would work out. I think the way it would play out would Mm -hmm. be that they also end up evolving into some form of Dealing with their own limited resources.
0: Right. And of course, you know, I can play the word game game with you of... How do we define memory? Because if we define memory as storage plus processing, or plus a certain kinds of processing, then by definition, a machine that just has a computer chip does not have memory in that sense. So it's sort of how we define it and what we basically, you're complicating the notion of what in memory involves. I think that's really helpful and important. And, you know, I talk a lot about in Bizzlecast 2. Uh, which was sort of the first, like, you know, really philosophical podcast I did, I talk about John Baudrillard, who's a French kind of post-existentialist philosopher, um, died a couple years ago, who came up with the simulations theory that was critical to the development of the Matrix, um, in which they reference a lot uh, in passing in in the Matrix movies, his book Simulacra and Simulation. Um, It's actually, you know, that first scene where Neo's in, in the room and he's He opens a book, gets at the computer chip that he's selling. The book is Simulacra Simulation. But point being, he argued that we're so far removed from regular reality because of all the structures economically, socially, philosophically, psychologically... Between you know what he considers a real existence, which fits in with sort of the primate thing, if we want to bring that in, but um, and how we're basically numerous orders of it's So it's not just that we're a simulation, but that it's like a simulation of a simulation of a simulation, and that's leading to a world that has an internal. Definition and manifestation of reality, but that isn't connected outside of this bubble to what he would call, you know, real reality. The way that you know a primate, perhaps, or a lower creature experiences real reality. I sort of argued the pros and cons of it. Ultimately, you know, I take from it that what I call interfaces, right? Is that we, we as humans, have various interfaces to interact with and that we wouldn't be able to handle all this information otherwise. And so I wonder if part of what makes us human is a particular interface or set of interfaces that is connected to memory, but also observation and perception and sensation, and that without that, uh, you cannot be human.
1: I think if you take those an extra level, you start to see that even Baudrillard's first simulation is a later stage simulation. Mm. Because even in his simplest form where there's just regular hunter-gatherer humans that don't have a complicated life yet, Mm. and and even before religion and the other parts become that first level of simulation, you already have a world in which we don't actually experience any of the things that we encounter. We experience simulations of them. Mm. That's how sight works. That's Mm -hmm. how sound works. We don't actually hear the sound waves that travel in the air, we have little things in our ears that vibrate and translate that into a current that our brain interprets as a version of what that sound was. Right. And we don't see the tree that's out there in the distance. We have cells in our eyes that receive light and then process patterns to work back into our brain to figure out, oh, that's a tree. So already, we're a level removed from whatever reality is. And that's before you ever get into any deeper philosophical questions about what it means to be a human or a primate or a slug or a fox, it does get back to that level of, you know, it it might not necessarily be that the continuum is from one, two, three on. It's not necessarily integers. It kind of works in all levels and all dimensions where you can keep going way down into smaller detail and earlier stages and probably infinitely in both ways.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I talk about these issues a lot. That was a great summary of it. A lot more concise than mine. Um, But, you know, really was starting with Plato with the allegory of the cave, which I'll just shortly mention here, which is essentially that if you were born in a cave and the only thing you knew were these moving shapes on a wall... And someone were to tell you that they were real people, then you would believe that they're real people, because you have no frame of reference. It's not until you get out of the cave into the sunshine, and you see that's the sun creating um, the reflections, the shadows, of just stick figures, basically, imitating... Uh, the form of reality, Um, and, you know, Descartes, obviously, with I Think Therefore I Am, really hammered this home, and then Kant, with his categories, and and the the fact that, you know, sensation and perception and other things are between us and reality, you know, the West is is very much on board with this. The problem is, and the reason I always go back to Taoism and Eastern philosophy, although, you know, I'm not truly convinced, I see both sides, is that in Eastern philosophy, they say you know what we experience is reality and so we can come up with all these things about simulations and it's not real and you know that maybe there is something different outside of our eyeball than inside our eyeball but we can never experience it so why bother essentially right i mean why not just deal with reality as it is and we can come up with scientific explanations But if we start coming up with – essentially if we start coming up with – and this is a very Christian thing – multiple levels of reality where God is like the only truly real thing and we're sort of like a shadow, uh, semi-real things, that can be very problematic even though scientifically maybe there's something there. I don't know. I I mean it sounds like you listen to the Baudrillard podcast. Um, Yeah, and then
1: yet I want to bring up a great development because this continues on what you're just getting to there. Sometimes it totally throws you for a loop and you're like, oh, cool. The Pope just wrote an encyclical that we have to embrace reality yeah. about how science and humanity has an impact on the environment. I know, it's And crazy. we were supposed to believe that Christianity is bilaterally opposed to the idea of science because that's what some people in the Bible Belt in the U.S. have hijacked our government into thinking. And then the Pope's like, no, fuck that. We're ruining the world, and science confirms that. And by the way, I'm the Pope. So if I say that, maybe you have to take that (laughs) seriously. Oh, yeah. Which to me is one of the coolest developments in our, you know, recent news in the last couple of weeks.
0: I wonder if there's, this is a typical sidebar of a sidebar on Bizzlecast, but I wonder, I would love to see the rates of Catholic conversion since the new Pope has been the Pope. I wonder if, like, more people are either becoming Catholic or, like, re-embracing Catholicism, because he's pretty much the first progressive Pope ever, I mean... You know, it used to be that you know, being pope and progressive were really two sides of the spectrum. You yep. know, and it's like that with any you know leader with too much power. I'm not picking on Catholicism here. All of the religions have this. It just happens to be. The Pope, based on sheer numbers, has the most followers of any major religious figure on the planet. It's not even close because Catholicism is so hierarchical. And so that is a great development. It's interesting, you know, in Taoism, they're not anti-science. They're just sort of indifferent to it or apathetic. Um, They're fine with it, but, you know, Taoism is really saying, you know, we can be happy with science or without it, whereas Christianity, as you pointed out, at least in some interpretations that have dominated, seems to be specifically anti-science-science. And there's a large group in this country of certain kinds of Christians who feel that way. But the thing that gets lost is that, um, you know christian philosophers back to like augustine and thomas aquinas they created the method of logical argument that eventually evolved into philosophical argument which eventually evolved into scientific argument so it, you know people out there if you're if you're religious uh if you're western religious christian whatever and you don't like science go read some augustine from you know 427 ce and blame him for it so christianity is actually responsible for science and lot of ways sort of a weird thing to think about um, but let's circle back ground this a little bit when it comes to memory are you into memory movies like memento and stuff like that like do you get off on that stuff because i do i love that anything that involves Definitely
1: that you love a bunch of them especially when they are not only captivating um from a cinematic photography perspective but also at least somewhat accurate or grounded in how things really work Mm. as opposed to totally fictional and a movie like Memento is just grounded enough in real science that it's so cool even when you're a memory nerd. So it is close. It is close. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean mean, obviously it's portrayed in a very unique way but it is tied to a lot of real things of exactly how those forms of amnesia work And one of the coolest things about my professor at the time, John Seaman, who is now just retiring, which is awesome, because he seems extremely happy and ready for the next chapter of his life. And when I first met him, he told me he wasn't sure if he would be around long enough for me to do my master's, because he was thinking he might retire soon. And that was 15 years ago, to talk about someone who found a new lease on life and kept finding new questions he wanted to explore. But one of the things that was so cool about a guy like that is when I was... I guess it was right as I was transitioning from undergrad to grad, so in that that hybrid year, um, when I was already partially his grad student and TA student, but I was also still an undergrad. um, He was starting a class that was all about memory in the movies, and it became this really fun project that was cool and captivating, and there was no reason it had to be like a joke class, because it wasn't you started analyzing these movies and what do they get right and what do they get wrong and what's artistic license versus what actually is grounded and some of that stuff is so interesting and I agree that it can be really compelling because it's grounded in something real it's Mm -hmm. not just a construction.
0: Uh, Any other movies sort of in that vein that 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 you like Um, I mean there's certainly tons of artificial intelligence oh did you see Ex Machina by the way?
1: No. One of the ones that really I think is so cool, and this is not necessarily one that's grounded in science, but I've always just found its interpretation so awesome, is Inception. Even though there are many aspects of it that are just crazy action movie, the ideas that it portrays I just find so compelling. And to this day, Inception has become part of, at least for me and some of my friends, part of our regular vocabulary sometimes, when you can find a way to Inception an idea into a friend's brain. Like yeah. I just think that's such an interesting approach it is. and that was so novel at the time when it came out yeah. I, I always have to give those guys kudos
0: I give kudos um, I will say though you know, in the beginning of the Terminator podcast I talk about how the Terminator and really 95% of all scientific properties including classic books the big idea is sometimes too big for the property and I think that as cool as Inception was and you kind of hinted towards this you know, sort of the big idea, philosophical idea behind it it would be impossible to fully realize and they did the best they could Um, I go back and forth on Nolan I love Memento and The Prestige I'm so so on Dark Knight movies I I, I liked Inception, I didn't love it but I did love the idea behind Inception I think I, I couldn't get The Matrix out of my head because to me it was basically the same movie the difference was the various forms of Matrix reality were sort of simulations in the Baudrillard sense um, where memory was involved but not central as opposed to Inception where memory and, and I guess dreams and subconscious memories were central but in terms of the numerous level of embedded simulations I just couldn't get that out of my head um, which is necessarily a bad thing I don't know.
1: That's fair and yet in a movie like Inception that so captivatingly approaches these beautiful rich visual interpretations of what it's like to dream Mm. because we all have dreams and when you see someone that actually portrays that well in art and it's not just a cheesy sitcom approach to what a dream was but it's these really interesting things with cool effects that aren't cheesy i always find that stuff so awesome
0: well and, and you know I mean, (laughs) I'm never going to put Inception anywhere near my personal list when it comes to the Matrix, but I will say that in some ways it's more compelling because at the beginning of the Matrix, it's essentially the same thing happening, right? Everyone's living in a shared fake memory, essentially, um, that's unfolding. But in the Matrix, there's a specific force behind it being the machines, Whereas Inception, it's it's all humans. And I guess that's sort of what makes it a little bit more complex uh, in a way, you know, because you find out that the people... Like, DiCaprio, you know, a typical, he's doing the job because he's, it's, it's like, you know how a lot of, of therapists need therapy themselves kind of thing, you know, like, people who are interested in psychology often have psychological issues, it's not a bad thing, actually I think it makes them them better for it, if they can handle it, but but DiCaprio's sort of, you know, he's trying to figure out, you know, manipulate these dreams when he hasn't really overcome his own demons in terms of memory right when it comes to uh
1: and the sad part about a movie like inception this is really your point about some of these properties just can't live up to their idea Mm -hmm. is that uh, a movie like inception it was great but i would have much rather just read the short story (laughs) totally (laughs) you know like not not many of these interpretations are able to really be as grand as the matrixes of the world. You know, sometimes they really pull it off, and it's awesome, and those are the ones that you've talked about as super epic. But a lot of other times, you're like, all right, that was great. Been there, done that. It would have been a really interesting short story. You know, I mean, what was the island? God, that movie would have been a great short story if I could read the 15-page version by any sci-fi author. But to watch that whole thing, it's almost like you want to cover your eyes and feel embarrassed for someone.
0: Right, right. Well, the thing with The Matrix, though, a lot of people, some people understand this inherently. You and I know this sort of consciously, or figured out consciously. People who don't like The Matrix are just like, well, it's just philosophy with Kung Fu, right? But they don't realize that Kung Fu is philosophy, and that, you know, there's a very specific reason why conflicts in The Matrix are resolved through martial arts, because It's the most refined form of physical human interaction. Um, and it is extremely philosophical itself, and so it's just a physical manifestation of basically two computer programs attacking each other. Um, most people don't make that connection, whereas Inception, it was like, okay, here's a really cool idea, and then we're just going to package an action movie around it. And so I think you could say that about The Matrix. I just think the, the, the reason for the action in The Matrix is much more apparent than in Inception, where you could make that movie with zero violence, right? I mean, in theory. Yeah, and so, and so, yeah, but you know, I love Nolan, um, he's got interesting ideas, I don't know if you saw Interstellar, um, I mean, maybe we should just talk about the, the Terminator for a couple of minutes, because I did just do the podcast, and we are both really into it, I, I don't know if there's anything that you would really want to add, I don't, I've said everything basically, but if you have some ideas, I, I would well, love to the hear them. the one
1: thing that I thought you got into when you dealt with Terminator and then your little appendix too, right, especially appendix yeah i feel addendum whatever you want to call it right i feel like there is a flaw i don't know if it's a fatal flaw but there's a problem in the logic of your argument that therefore because Don connor knew he always knew or there's this this approach to the time loops and you said, suddenly it's resolved. We know it was always a loop. You had gotten to a point when, you, in your appendix specifically that it answered one of the... Look, because of XYZ, it answered one of your questions from the earlier podcast, which was that main point.
0: Well, basically, I'm just trying to present multiple possibilities um, that there could be a time loop that's just a time loop. There could be a time loop that's initiated at a very specific time linearly that then results in a time loop that there could be a time loop that results linearly and then moves forward linearly at some point. Uh, you know. There's the Multipolar or Infinite Universe Theory. I guess with the addendum, I was trying to figure out if there was a way to have it so John Connor, the first time he sends Kyle Reese, knew, but not for the same reason that he knows every other time. right? So the first time he sends Kyle Reese, and the first manifestation of the John Connor time loop scenario, or the Kyle Reese scenario... John just has a feeling, for some reason, that Kyle is like a good match for his mom or something, or, or Kyle sees the photo in John's office and is attracted to it, and John gives it to him, and then he sees how much Kyle's t- sort of falling in love with the idea of her, and so John being John Connor says, okay, maybe this guy is actually my dad, I don't know for sure. And then the second time through, he knows, and every other time through, he knows. And so he has to send Kyle back without telling Kyle that he's sending him back. And on top of that, <laughs> make Kyle think that this isn't a time loop, that each time he does it is the first and only time, right? Because a guy like John Connor can handle that sort of level of contradiction and paradox. I don't think most people could. Um, but I, right. I guess. And I guess, so
1: yeah. you brought up a great point in this idea of the first loop and then every loop thereafter. And so the first time through, maybe John Connor didn't know that Kyle Reese was his father, but as soon as he gets through that chain, he has to then therefore know, and therefore through all other parts of the loops, he knows. Right. And I would almost call that, in my yeah. head, I know this is not a technical term, I call that more of a loop to loop because it, 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 for me, it helps me wrap my head around the fact that when you have one of those toy cars as a kid, where you pulled it back, and then the spring caused it to rocket forward, and you could send it through a loop or something that it starts into that loop from somewhere. But there's this weird paradox that I think that appendix didn't fully capture, which is that, okay, in this sense, for learning the fact of Kyle Reese being John Connor's father, maybe it's a loop-de-loop that ends in an infinite loop in the sense that you get into it from somewhere, but then once you've gotten into it, it always continues on itself.
0: Well, that's the Donnie Darko scenario, which, yeah. But the problem that doesn't address is that doesn't address the paradoxical aspect
1: of the fact that John Connor could never exist in a first loop that didn't have Kyle Reese coming back to impregnate his mom. Therefore, there's this weird sense in which for one philosophical issue, we can address it and call it some sort of loop scenario with a first loop that goes into these infinite loops. But then you still have the other totally separate contradictory paradox of it has to be this sense in which the loops always exist, always have existed, and always will exist, because those are required just for John Connor to exist in the first
0: place. Exactly. A few quick points on that. First of all, I have an article I got like a day ago in the digital journal I'm going to send to you, but we've both come across this before, that if you really follow quantum physics and quantum theory vis-a-vis time to its full conclusion linearity doesn't exist outside of our brains, as we talked about earlier, and that actually future events theoretically could determine past events in the same way past determine future, because in reality, it's just a different spatial dimension that we perceive as linear time. So that would be one explanation, right, is that if the past, present, future is all set and happening simultaneously, then that the, the any of those time loop scenarios could work. But To bring it back to to your point, I did the addendum, but then I went back to the podcast, and from a purely logical standpoint, the idea that John has always known and will always know logically is the only one that makes sense. You'd have to assume this quantum theory universe where past, present, and future are just relative, because as you point out, (laughs) John Connor would have to be created. Um, And so, you know, I guess it's interesting to think, you know, when you watch the first Terminator... Is that the first time through? Is that the millionth time through? I mean, it could be any of those, right? In terms of Kyle going back to the past. Um, So, you know, and that's why I think the Sarah Connor Chronicles was great because it looked at all these paradoxes and just said, this has to be a multiple or infinite timeline universe. It just when you look at the the, the, the Terminator backstory and storylines and characters as well as you know what we know about physics or what they knew in 2008 or whenever the series was and which I, I personally believe is the case. of course let's bring it back to your work. Say we are, in every second, uh, infinite numbers of universes are spawning. Let's just say that that's the case. How does our specific consciousness navigate one of those infinite timelines? That's the part that doesn't make sense to me, talking about memory and consciousness.
1: We navigate all that through extreme systems of simplification and abstraction. That's what sight is. That's what hearing is. All the things we were talking about earlier these are the best we can do to understand and represent in our own brain things that are going on around us. So, you know, if you look at any of the classic books that help, you know, blow your mind and you're like, whoa, talk about Hetty, considering your term of Hetty in the other podcast. It was definitely part of our life back in the day. That, like, you read something like Flatland, which Mm. is so simple. And it's just this analogy to help you realize that, a character that exists in a two-dimensional universe doesn't understand what three dimensions are. Or the giver. And then suddenly this world is invaded by a three-dimensional being and that throws everything on its head. And it's just supposed to be something to help us think about the fact that maybe the fourth dimension, time, is more than we think of it. And then, of course, by extension, maybe all these other dimensions that we just can't process because they don't exist in the world that we are able to think about. They're all out there. We're just... Pulling in what we can, and that's the best we can do. So, you know, what is reality is a philosophical question that doesn't necessarily have an answer because it's really more a question of what are we able to process, what are we able to conceive of, what are we able to think through. That becomes our reality, but that's an ever changing question.
0: I have two quick things um, on this topic because we could talk about it forever. Um, I'm definitely going to do a full-on, like, AI, memory, futurist podcast. I want a roundtable at some point, and so you have an open invite to that. That probably will be weeks away, but would love to have you there. Um, That might be my first roundtable about artificial intelligence, although I'm going to require that everyone see Ex Machina and a couple other uh, stuff. But anyways, last two things. There was two things I actually cut out of the Sarah Connor... or sorry, of the Terminator podcast, partially because it was too long, and partially because I just couldn't figure out how to fit them in, but I think they both apply here. The first one is, I refer to the time loop conundrums as the anthropic principle of of the entertainment industry. Um, and, you know, the anthropic principle basically says that the universe exists because we observe that it exists, or, or that we are here to observe that it exists, therefore it exists, right? Which is the opposite of "I think, therefore I am," essentially. But in is totally circular reasoning, even to a cursory look. Uh, there's actually something called the strong anthropic principle, where it says that the universe creates us to be conscious, um, to sense it, which is a very religious idea. But point being, you know, these are these are like big cosmological ideas that are, are very much circular reasoning that makes sense in a way, but also are totally illogical. But the main one I cut out, and, you know, if we really want to go here, is that I spent so much time in in, in the podcast, in the Terminator podcast, talking about all the scientific stuff. But, you know, unlike with the Taoism podcast, I don't really talk about meaning and what meaning and purpose is. And I said that um, in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the fact that they push forward the infinite timeline universe theory actually hurts it, not because it's not smart, it's actually the smarter way to go, but because any semi-intelligent watcher is going, okay, well, if this is one of an infinite number of John Cotter universes, then why the fuck do I care about this one, you know? And I took that out because it was a little, I don't know, but to bring it back to a personal... And yet, yeah. I think
1: that they were able to make that compelling. They did. Because they they added in more parts that you didn't necessarily get to, although I'm sure you Love to notice these two, which is that why should you care? Because of the other stuff you see, because of the character development of someone like Lena Hayes. And that's, Hades, that's the exact Emma.
0: conclusion. Sorry, to interrupt. that's exactly now. what I say immediately upon what I said before. Is just almost identically what you said because of the characters and the story and everything else.
1: And one of the best parts I found in that show was the repeated visual depictions of Judgment Day coming and Sarah Connor's fear, nightmares, anxiety about this thing that she knows is happening and that she's doing everything possible to help there be a messianic figure who can get humanity through it. And yet still, it's so captivating because you see this character torn by the experience of knowing what's coming and others don't know yet, and these scenes of children blowing up on playgrounds and parents and people with this immense loss, that's right. what ends up making it compelling, even if there are infinite time loops, and you should say, alright, why should I care if there's just a million time loops? Well, you care because in every single one of those time loops, there are these characters that go through life, and life is rich with meaning.
0: Well, and that's what, that's what was so transgressive about the series, if that's the right word, is that, it, no one really picked up on this, is that What they want you to realize is that the time loops don't matter. The characters matter, you know? Like, the time loop stuff's so fun, but you're not rooting for John Connor in all timelines. You're rooting for Thomas Decker on this television show, right? I mean... You're not going, oh, well, there's an infinite number of John Connor timelines, infinite number of John Connor timelines, and I'm rooting for John Connor in all of them in an abstract way. No, I'm rooting for Thomas Decker. And that's why, spoiler alert, in the final episode, when he jumps to the future as still a kid and no one knows who he is, um, this would be a great place to wrap this up so we can jump back to the spirits and close out the Bizzlecast. Really quick, John, last episode, 16-year-old John Connor jumps to the future with Catherine Weaver, the non-Skynet Terminator, or whatever you want to call her, and is unknown there. His dad, Kyle, is there, doesn't know who he is. Derek is there, having been killed, is now alive in the future, doesn't know who he is. Um, uh, The girl who Cameron is based on, uh, Summer Glau, whose name is Allison, who is a human, that was captured by the Terminators, and then they impersonated her identity and made her into Cameron, so her human version, Allison, is there. So, here's the big question. Does this change anything? about the timeline. In other words, is there anything in previous parts of the show, or even the movies, where it specifically made it seem like this wouldn't be possible? Me- uh, meaning, uh, let me get, let me simplify this. Did John, was the only way that John Connor was going to uh, 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 survive Judgment Day to jump past it?
1: I think you ask good questions. There's a lot there, I, yeah. No, they're almost a little unfair because we're not dealing with the elephant in the room, which is that the show was ending prematurely and the writers were trying to wrap up what probably should have been dealt with over a couple seasons into a couple episodes when they found out they weren't being renewed. Right. So as much as sometimes in a show I love they end it horribly and I'm really mad, I also have to at least forgive that the writers don't necessarily know how much time they get to deal with issues and they try to plan out a certain arc, but oftentimes it doesn't go their way. So I will take from it that all the episodes in the middle of those couple seasons, those two seasons, whatever it was, the meat and potatoes of the show were so good at addressing big questions and doing them in a way that wasn't one-dimensional. That's why it's so interesting. You're talking about these characters and how we care about them. Mm -hmm. It's much more than just the hook of something with machines that come back from the future. It's multi-dimensional, and that's what makes it so compelling. And that's where movies like The Matrix that I know you're obsessed with that's where they're so good compared to other movies that have something interesting but they're kind of just schlocky and you feel like, "Eh, who cares? Is that there's so many levels of depth that they're just rich with this depth that makes it so compelling no matter how much you choose to either just focus on the surface or delve into it as much as possible.
0: Absolutely. And just to close it out, the reason I brought this specifically up other than just wanting to know your opinion and i agree with everything you're saying um was that over time it's come to seem more brilliant to me because initially it was just like oh they had to end the show early and so it, they just wanted some shock value at the end of the show i sort of dismissed it as that but as time went on i started thinking about it and if you look at the clues in the show and even in the first couple movies it would kind of make sense that the messiah would be kind of an older teenager when he first started, right? I mean, not only that, but one of the themes of the show is how radically the timeline is being changed by Cameron and Derek and other people being in the past, and as I mentioned, you know, sort of later in this uh, the show, Cameron remarks openly that he's, like, way ahead of his training was in the original scenario. I wonder if it was just uh, going to the character side of things, because I really don't care about the time travel stuff as much as we'll have to talk about it. Character, I wonder if John was like, I can't do anything more in the present. My mom's giving me everything she can. Cameron's gone. Derek's dead. Skynet's gonna happen. You know, we tried to stop... Sk- I mean, if you think about it, they failed the entire series to stop Skynet, even a little bit. In fact, they were pursuing the Weavers who weren't even Skynet. So I think he did get trained, and so the logical thing is, well, everyone's dead or ineffective. I better just go to the future and start. I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting idea. Um, and there's you something very
1: beautiful there that is very classic when you look at any story that is the hero's tale or Jesus' tale or whatever you want to call that classic model mm. of what becomes most sci-fi books but also many, many, many other books Sure. is that – you so often see this theme where the main character spends the entire book trying to deny what has to happen, and then the capitulation at the end of the book where they embrace what's going to happen is then what makes it so interesting and compelling. Yep. And that's the first
0: Dune book right there. I was you just going to say, Muad'Dib. You just nailed Muad'Dib. Paul, Paul Trader That's the whole book. Yeah, And then that's so
1: many other books, too. And the part that's so interesting is that internal torture... The whole book, movie, TV show, whatever it is, mm-hmm. where in this case they did nothing that changed anything about Skynet through all of yeah. the Sarah Connor Chronicles. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And then eventually John Connor says, "Well, screw it. I have to embrace that the reality is the reality is the all timeline right. is the timeline is. All the things we've done haven't changed it. What I have to do is I have to embrace that it's happening and go be part of it. And that's the whole change." That's a beautiful and really intelligent approach to what otherwise is a very difficult thing to wrap up.
0: Yeah, and just to end this here, the idea that in this newest timeline... The line between machine and man is blurring. You have Cameron, you got John Henry, you have AIs that seem to want to be good or at least more, you know, humanistic, if you will. And so this is another, I think, um, measurable that John realizes that things are going to be different when they go to the future because they'll be, you know, it won't just be purely good versus evil. There will be some robots, AIs in the middle, perhaps, which is also really brilliant, I think. Yeah. So, um, cool, man. Well, uh, just quickly, are you excited about uh, Genesis, or do you think it's gonna be terrible?
1: Uh, it wasn't even on my radar until seeing a couple trailers in the last month or so. Yeah, me and too. even if it was gonna be schlocky and horrible, I would have gone and seen it. Yep. So now that I've heard that you're pumped about it, I'm pumped about it.
0: Yeah, I. You know, it's it's one of those things where it wasn't seeing the first trailer itself that got me pumped up. Although it was kind of cool and funny it was just seeing amelia clark next to arnold schwarzenegger it just triggered something in my brain i'm like this is so crazy this 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 matching is so crazy it just might work um and you know i mean there's nothing to get an old washed up actor going like going back to his roots right i mean if you're arnold you're gonna get pumped up about anything at this point you'd think that this this would be it i don't know if you watch game of thrones i stopped after the first couple seasons you watch Oh, I do, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You watch. I love, I love Amelia Clark, and you know, I think by the as I mentioned, the transitive property of Game of Thrones, you've got you know Lena Headey, who was the second Sarah Connor in the Sarah Connor Chronicle, who plays Cersei on Game of Thrones. So I, apparently, something really bad happened to her. I don't watch. You don't need to spoil it. Um, but uh, and then uh, but her castmate is Amelia Clark who is now playing the new Sarah Connor, but also one of the key directors of Game of Thrones in the first two seasons, which for the best, in my opinion, is Alan Taylor, who's directing the movie. So I don't know what all this means. I think I'm just sick of all the other Hollywood stuff and hoping this is good. So we'll have to revisit that.
1: one thing that's so great about both of them that you alluded to in one of your previous podcasts, and then you brought up this other person, although it didn't tie them together, is the Claire Danes effect, which is these actors and actresses yes. who can convey so much without saying a
0: single word I love you for bringing up Claire Danes like that thank you I love you them. yes so no keep going I was just really excited that you brought up Claire Danes I had not thought of that comparison I love Claire Danes yeah, her, her work I mean, on Homeland is ridiculous that's
1: life. and Claire Danes has carried this through into many other things too I mean sure. I love Homeland yeah, but yeah. Especially back in the day, it's groundbreaking how much she was able to convey in what should have otherwise been a cheesy teenage heartbreak show. Oh, yeah. And we all loved it it was so compelling. And it was compelling because this actress is so talented that she can convey anything with her face, with or without words accompanying it. And that's something that I think Amelia Clark and Lena Headey are also incredibly talented at, totally. which is one reason why it's great to watch two of them together in Game of Thrones, yeah. but also in general. That, that I have to agree is one of the things that made Sarah Connor Chronicles great with Lena Headey as Sarah Connor and it, I, what I hope will make Genesis great with Amelia Clarke as Sarah Connor.
0: Absolutely. So I look forward to that. But as we um, you know uh, round third base here headed for home, when us ended where we start, which I often do because bring things full circle, but specifically because the the company and project that Sivan is working on uh, right now with the Spirits Company with Stone Cutter Spirits that's one word Stone Cutter and then Spirits um, a, a website or media you want to plug first
1: StoneCutterSpirits.com
0: All right there you go um, and you know Sivan had some experience in another company um, working with spirits but decided for various reasons to start his own and so um, we talked a little bit about it in the beginning but um, just take us really quick through kind of a day in the life and, uh, wh- and sort of where you're at right now and, and, and where you're trying to get to, I guess.
1: Well, I mean, Sass and I are a husband-and-wife team, and at this point, we're still the entire company. So we're almost two years into this, and we have a massive aging facility and a couple hundred barrels full of spirits that are aging. <laughs> yeah, at the same time, even a day like today, I'm on the phone with you now, but before this, Sass and I were out bottling in the bottling room together And before that, I was moving barrels around while she was prepping some stuff for one of our first events. Mm -hmm. So one of the parts that is both exhausting and exciting about being in a small startup, this isn't just true for spirits is that you wear so many hats. Mm -hmm. And that part can be great. It also can be extremely draining, Mm -hmm. but you have to do so many different things. And the part that I found really great about that is we love what we're doing. We're really interested in this. We're passionate about this. We started doing this because we're interested in aging. We happen to be fans of spirits, but the truth is, the more you end up working in booze in general, the less you consume of it, because you end up, it's work, and it's everything, and it's not about like, oh, yo, let's go get drunk and do this or that. I found that most people that work (laughs) in spirits, or in beer, or in cider, or in wine, end up being much more, to your point earlier, of tastemakers, they much more think about it, Mm -hmm. they're thinking about cocktails, they're thinking creatively, For us, that's been such a fun process. We're doing aged gin. That's our first product that comes out really soon.
0: Oh, God. I'm I'm salivating here.
1: A couple years ago. You know, I mean, for us, it's a whiskey lover's gin. We're taking a gin that we created this recipe specifically with aging in mind. There's a couple other folks out there that have done barrel-aged gins in the last couple of years that really didn't exist until a couple of years ago, sure. but most of those were really folks that were already making a gin, and they thought, hey, let's see what happens if we age it. It'll probably get better. And I think they have gotten better. They've been some cool examples, but in general, they weren't meant for aging, so sometimes those have conflicts. You know, They made a botanical recipe that was very floral, and that was great for the regular gin but didn't work out well with the aging. We weren't trying to do that. We're never releasing our gin as an unaged gin. Mm. From the get-go, the entire plan was to create this recipe with aging in mind so that the nuances that come out of the barrel, the caramel influences, the
0: wood influences, the
1: whiskey influences, these are former whiskey barrels, those, we treat them as if they're part of the botanical recipe in the gin itself. And that has proved out to be so cool, because, of course, I was losing sleep about this for a long time, and now our first bath is finally out of barrels and came out to be everything we wanted it to be and then some. So it's so cool that it actually works out and that it gets much better while it's aging, that everything melds together, it mellows out, and it's smooth. This is a gin that you can drink neat or on the rocks in addition to in a cocktail. You can drink it like a whiskey. You don't have to only drink it in a G&T or a martini. Well, that's interesting. While it's great, it's flexible to be used any way you want yeah. and it's smooth enough that drink it on
0: its own which is interesting because I I read an article or two recently that talks about how the best gin should never be drinking straight or more that it's the best cocktail liquor essentially it wasn't saying don't drink it straight it just said you know if you look at like all the greatest high-end cocktails like half of them have gin in them um, and so as someone who loves gin and because it's Bizzlecast and it's my podcast and you know about making gin, I, man, I have researched this online and I just don't have time to go through all the technical terms. And so I know gin is amazing. I think it's superior because of the flavor qualities are so complex. Even for someone like me, who doesn't drink a lot of alcohol or liquor, I can just taste the, all the different berries and herbs. And so what makes gin so different from the other, um uh, Liquors and, and, what, and what and addendum to that, what made you want to jump in there as well?
1: The one thing that gin has to have is juniper, and that's the main botanical. Some gins are just juniper; mm. um, they're pretty much all distilled from grain to start, and then they're distilled with juniper. Okay. But whereas gin used to be a very standard classic, and that's what we think of as London gins or London dry or sure. dry in general gins, which are juniper and a little citrus there's really this growing movement of American craft spirits that's led to people asking so many questions. What can I do with this? What can I do with that? And so the gins you see in America tend to be juniper and a number of other botanicals. They've gotten very creative in ways that are really fun. So for us, as we created our recipe, we really thought through a botanical profile that would work with aging. Mm -hmm. And so we've got We've got orange peel. We've got cardamom. We've got cardamom. We've got licorice, root. and some of these are subtle. The licorice root is very subtle. The cardamom is very upfront. because that's one of the things that just comes out to the fore after the aging, and that's the part that's been so fun. Is that even the original recipe? In terms of you know, you look at one botanical versus another by weight, you think, oh, this one should be more dominant than the other. Right. But they change over time while they all blend together while they're aging. It's such a cool change that's been very exciting for us as we've tracked the progress mm-hmm. and now taken it out of barrels because it's done. Mm. That part's been so cool that we're really excited to finally be about to be sharing it with everyone. We'll be on shelves in Vermont this month and we'll hopefully be in New York and Boston by the fall. We're not really planning on being anywhere more than regional. We're trying to do something much smaller that we as a husband and wife team can get out to be wherever the product is. We want to be at events. We want to be meeting both regular consumers who are out there drinking the Spirit, but also the bartenders and the mixologists and the owners. We'd like to have direct connection and relationships with the people that are going to be involved. So we're trying to stay to places at least for the first year or two that can be places that we can get to ourselves relatively easily.
0: Awesome. So all you listeners out there, keep an eye on StonecutterSpirits.com. I assume you have a mailing list. Join the mailing list. Um, You have other social media, Facebook, the whole thing.
1: Instagram is our main one, which is okay. at Spirits. and Zach maintains an awesome presence on there. That it's I it's fairly odd how social media changes the way people interact and think. Yes. But one of the really cool things there is uh, a platform like that enables you to reach and meet people that you wouldn't otherwise have met, or at least wouldn't have met yet. Mm-hmm. We already have folks that follow us that are, you know, important accounts that we'll want to get to in Boston, for example. And, and you are to have a relationship with someone just because they're interested in what you're doing and you're interested in what they're doing. So that's a new world that is definitely uh, crazy for me, but is one that she's very good at and uh, we're slowly delving more and more into.
0: All right. Well, my friend, Sivan Kotel, who I met in college, my freshman roommate, met him as a musician in a generally deep, dude very hilarious and then got into some awesome academic pursuits ended up in the world of finance now has his own spirits company it's quite a ride man any any uh, last uh, wisdom or thoughts to to share with the bizzlecast listeners
1: man i just hope that everyone is having as much fun as i'm having and that everyone is still asking good questions and being asked good questions those are the parts that you gotta have happen every day as long as those are happening, I hope everyone's doing
0: well. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I, I'm having a lot of my friends on, but um, definitely having friends on who talk about everything. with. I mean, we go from Jen to John Connor, you know, that everyone could do that. And so I appreciate that. Um, and you'll definitely be hearing more from Sivan in the future. Like I said, buddy, I want to start having some roundtables with these big philosophical issues down the line, and so I know scheduling's always difficult, great. but you're, you're definitely on the short list if you want to be when that happens. And uh, in the meantime, we'll track your progress, and thanks for being on, man. This was great.
1: Happy to be here. Hope I'll uh, get the chance to be on again soon.
0: All right. Stonecutter Spirit, Sivan Cotel. Hope you all enjoyed it, and we are out.